All right. Hey, good morning. Three Circle. Merry Christmas to you guys as we kick off our annual Christmas series. It's going to be a great time as we dive into this series. Last week we started Advent, and I hope you guys are enjoying the season already. So we're going to start uh, today our Christmas series. Every year I get asked this. I get asked, hey man, do you ever get tired of talking about the same thing every Christmas? Same thing. i got to preach on it every year. My answer is if I had 50 lifetimes to talk about the birth of Christ, the incarnation, it wouldn't be enough. This epic story of what God has done for us. So I love it. I love Christmas, and I can't wait to dive into a Another angle of the great Christmas story today. And we're going to look at the idea of Jesus being a king and the fact that the entire Old Testament was pointing to the coming of King Jesus. Jesus was a king. And we're going to look at that. And today we're going to look at how that should bring us hope. The fact that Jesus was a king, is a king, that he came once and he's coming again should bring us great hope as believers. And hope is a really big deal. In fact, researchers at John Hopkins University did this research project, and they were using rats. I guess rats are the best thing to research with, I guess. I don't know. But they were doing this research project, and they had this vat of water, and the water was swirling, and they put rats in the water. And the whole thing was they're going to see how long can the rats last when they realize there's no way out. How long will they fight? How long will they swim? So the rats are swimming, and they timed them. And when a rat would give up and start sinking below the surface, they'd pull the rat out. Okay, and they kept one by one dropping. And the last one that gave up and had to pull them out, they lasted 15 minutes. All right? So once they realized there's no way out, they tried every little spot, there's no way out of here, they gave up at the 15-minute mark. Okay? So then, and literally in the research, uh, they said, hey, we're going to inject hope into this situation. So what they did is when the rats would grow tired, they could see them. As soon as they got tired, someone would grab the rat and pull it out. Let it catch its breath, put him right back in. Just like that. And when they injected this hope and each rat realized when he started getting tired, he was going to take a breath and then go back in, this is going to blow your mind. The rats were able to swim in the water for 60 hours. Hours. Till finally they just stopped. Finally they just stopped the whole project. They just, I guess they're going to do it forever, you know. And they got them out of there. So that's how powerful hope is. It reminds me one time I went to a hospital room around Christmas time with someone who was deathly ill. They were in the hospital room, and as I walked up to visit them, I could smell that Christmas candle smell, you know, that spruce smell, which I love. Don't y'all just love that? It, makes you, it brings back a million memories. And as I walk into what was supposed to be a sad and dark environment, I walk in, and there's hope. And this person who was a believer and her family had decided, you know what, we are going in the face of this disease that she's fighting. She's never, and she never did get out of that hospital room. They were like, we're going to have Christmas and we're going to light a candle and it's going to smell like Christmas in here and we're going to have that kind of hope. Why? Because we need hope. We breathe the air of hope as people and certainly as Christians. But what I want you to understand at Christmas time is that hope, from a biblical sense, is not rah-rah type stuff. This is not a pep rally. I'm not going to give you three weeks of telling you life is great, why are you upset, it's easy, trust in Jesus, everything will be perfect, all that. I'm not going to give you that. Because here's what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is not an emotion. Biblical hope, J.D. Greer gives us this great definition. He says hope is a trustful anticipation of the promises of God. That's what it is. It's not just some random thing that we are hoping for. It's not some emotion that wells up in us. No, it is something real. For Christians, it is trustful anticipation of the promises of God. It is built on his promises. Now, what we're going to do during this series is the first two weeks, we're going to look at two Old Testament prophecies, and they're not the, the ones that maybe you've heard a million times at Christmas time. They're two different Old Testament prophecies, and the context 
in which they were given make them even more powerful, and I think it's going to bring us a lot of hope. Now, why would we go to the Old Testament at Christmas time? Because Christmas seems to be such a New Testament thing, right? I mean, the birth of Jesus is recorded in the New Testament. Well, Paul wrote in Romans about the Old Testament this. This is why you should never stop reading the Old Testament. shouldn't leave it behind. We should never unhitch from it. It is important to us. Here's what he said. He said, for whatever was written in former days. You may want to underline former days and just put there, that means Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. He says, whatever was written in former days was written, and here's why you have the Old Testament, for your instructions. You can learn from it. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, that word Scriptures there means Old Testament, in that moment, what does it say it will bring us? We can, we can have hope. And, and we just define hope. So what kind of hope does the Old Testament bring us if we'll dive into it? It brings us a trustful anticipation of the promises of God. Now, why is that? Here's why. Because listen to me, church. When you study the Old Testament, it is evidence that God made a whole lot of promises and he kept every one of them. Like you can trust God and his promises because there's this mountain of evidence that he not only makes promises, but he keeps them. And we're going to see that. So here's what I need to warn you, though, about biblical hope. Biblical hope does not ignore pain and suffering. Instead, it flourishes in the middle of it. It doesn't ignore pain and suffering. So what you're going to find is that God does not give us a version of escapism. If you want to escape, and by the way, there's plenty to escape right now. It's a dark time. In humanity, really. I mean, pandemics, the pandemic that just keeps coming, right? Just keeps renaming itself. It went from one to, then it was uh, Delta. Now it sounds like some space alien that's coming, you know, down from Canada. And I don't know what the next name will be. And, and we're all dealing with this stuff. And not only that, we have cultural things going on. And people are driving into parades and cars. And innocent people are being killed. And kids are killing kids in schools. And it just seems to just keep rolling. It's dark. And God does not offer us escape. If you want escapism at Christmas time, watch Elf. Elf is funny, right? You, you sit on a throne of lies, right? It's the, it's, it's, it's the greatest. Watch Home Alone. Watch the Christmas story if you need to escape. But the gospel is not an escape. It's better news than that. We're going to learn about a king who instead of pulling his people out of darkness, instead what he does is he joins his people in the middle of the darkness and shines the light that overtakes that darkness. That's, that's the kind of king Jesus is, and we're going to look at that. So to do it, in the Old Testament, we're going to go to Jeremiah. And I need to tell you about him a little bit. So Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. What a reputation, right? This dude cries all the time, okay? But he had a reason to. So Jeremiah was a prophet during one of the darkest times in Israel's history. So let me give you their history. So you go back to Abraham. You remember God promises Abraham, makes a covenant. He says, I'm gonna, you know, you're going to have descendants that are going to be like the stars in the heavens and the sands of the earth. And, I'm, and, and there was always this promise, and there's one coming. And you've got to go all the way back to Genesis to see who he's talking about. Remember, God's looking at Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he says, there's one coming, and you're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. There's this one. You keep hearing this language throughout the Bible. There's one coming. There's one coming. There's all these little descriptions about him. Well, we all modern, modern believers, we know who he is, right? Like we have the clarity of going, yeah, we know who that is, okay? So if you go back, though, you realize that the people of God at one point in their history said, we want an earthly king to represent us. So God said, okay, and he gave them Saul. Saul, kind of a bumpy start, right? But while Saul was king, the, the, the one that was really going to be the king showed up, and he was this young, kind of smallish, you know, wasn't the biggest dude in town, but good-looking, brave, a little bit crazy, but also incredible with a slingshot. You know what I mean? And he kills the giant, 
and becomes the talk of the town and one day becomes King David. And when King David becomes king, it is awesome in the land of Israel. The Bible says that David ran out of town and defeated every enemy that Israel had one by one. He just took them all down. So while David was king, everybody didn't mess with Israel, okay? Now his son was equally brilliant. So it's like good King David, then comes Solomon. And Solomon was great. And while David loved to fight, Solomon loved to build. So David ran all the enemies off. Solomon built this incredible city, Jerusalem, and built the temple known as one of the great wonders of the world. So the people of God enjoyed all of this great prosperity and safety and good leadership. And they weren't perfect. Like David wasn't a perfect king, but, but everything worked the way it should. You had the prophets, the priest, and the king. And King David listened to the prophet Nathan when he came and told him about his sin and repented of his sin. It was all doing what it was supposed to do, right? Well, then after Solomon and then his son Rehoboam, things went off the rails. And the kingdom got so bad because they had bad kings that the people of God stopped following God like they used to. And the kingdom split. It was one big kingdom. They split it in two. There was Israel and Judah, which made them more vulnerable. And then when you have two kingdoms, what do you also have to have then? Two kings. And guess what? Now there was more opportunities for bad kings, and they were bad. So you end up with bad kings after bad kings after bad kings. So Jeremiah was born into this world with two kingdoms and two bad kings. And the people of God had gotten so far from God, and they had no idea that the judgment of God was coming. Well, that was Jeremiah's job. So he, as a preacher, had to stand up and go, hey, this is not going to go well. It's not going to go well. And he ends up, by the current king, has put him in prison for preaching. He's like, we don't want to listen to you anymore. Sticks him in prison. Well, while he's in prison, guess who shows up at the doorsteps of Jerusalem? Basically a modern-day Taliban ISIS. It is the Babylonians. Now, if you've been around church long, you've probably heard of the Babylonian exile, right? The Babylonians were the most barbaric but also very powerful kingdom on the earth at that time. And they were right next door to Israel. And while David was king, they wouldn't mess with them. They're like, dude's got a slingshot. You know what I mean? And then Solomon comes along, don't mess with them. But when the, when the kingdom split and God took his hand off of Israel, not his covenant, but his hand of protection, he's now going to allow them to be disciplined in order to bring them back to him. And it's going to work. But it's going to get worse before it gets better. You following me? And what literally, the city is under siege. If you were standing in Jerusalem when Jeremiah said what we're about to read, you could hear the war chant of the Babylonians. And they all knew how bad it was going to be. They knew what they did to women and children. They knew what they were going to do when they got there. They knew this is going to be bad. And yet in the middle of all of that darkness, by the way, does it sound familiar at all? Because you can look around you and go, wow, this is a dark world. That was coming down on top of them. Jeremiah is going to stand and say these words in Jerusalem. Let's go there. Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now notice, that's why he has to say Israel and Judah. Don't be confused. It's the two kingdoms. He's saying to all my people... I made promises, and basically I'm going to keep them. And what promises had he made all the way back in Abraham? I'm going to make you a great nation. And then he said all along, there's one coming, and he's going to come. And then he had told them it's going to come from David. And, and they're all thinking, that can't be if everything's about to be destroyed. But God reminds them, as it looks like it's impossible, that he will keep his promises. What that means, and it should encourage us today, is this. God is a promise maker. He's also a promise keeper. 
and we have the evidence. Because we all know Jesus did indeed come just like he said he would. And that the Babylonians, they're going to destroy the temple. They're going to destroy the throne. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. You remember the gates are torn down? All, they destroy the city. And you would think it's done. There's no hope. But instead, God in the middle of it says, even though everything around you is about to be destroyed, it cannot stop me from keeping my promises. Isn't that great news for us? He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. How many of you have ever known a promise maker who was not a promise keeper? Come on now. Some of y'all, Christmas is hard because someone in your life made promises to you that they didn't keep. Some of you, Christmas is hard because Christmas reminds you that your marriage fell apart because your spouse made promises and they didn't keep them. Some of you, Christmas is hard because your childhood is full of scars. When you look back, Christmas is hard because they weren't good. And people who should have loved you and protected you and nourished you made promises that they didn't keep. People walked out on you. People abused you. People lied to you. Many of you are here and you bear the scars of promises that were made that were never kept. Few things can scar you more deeply, right? I got good news today, though. God is a God who makes tons of promises to us and keeps every one of them. And none of the circumstances you face can ever stop him from keeping his promises to you. And that's really good news. And you say, well, where do you have the evidence? Right here. Because Jerusalem is, is being destroyed while Jeremiah says these words. But we all know the stories, right? Now think about this for a second. If you've grown up in church, how many of you did? How many of you grew up in church? As a kid, you heard these incredible stories, didn't you, like I did? Like uh, Daniel in the, uh-huh. How about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the what kind of furnace? We know them, right? Oh, you Baptist out there in your Bibles. It's good, right? Those great stories, right? Where did they happen? When did they happen? In the Babylonian exile. That's where they happened. Miracles, God moving God. Some of the greatest stories in the Bible happen in, in their darkest day. Why did he do that? Because nothing can stop the promises of God. No circumstance, no earthly kingdom, no dictator. Nothing can stop God from working in and through his people. He's unstoppable. And that is why the Bible is there to remind us. Because I need to know, look, when you're facing cancer in a hospital room and they say you may never come out of the room, you need to be reminded that the God who says he'll sustain you in that hospital room is the same God who sustained Israel in Babylon. That's why it's important. And I'll tell you, hope is an important thing for us today. And we have real hope in Jesus. So he does exactly what he says he'll do. He told Samuel and, and David and those guys, when David was the king, he said in 2 Samuel, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. And that's exactly what he's going to do. It didn't look like it when Babylon was taking them over. But we all know that what Jeremiah said in those streets came true, don't we? There was a day coming. He was going to come and he was going to keep his promises. Look at the next verse of the prophecy, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. A righteous branch will come out of David. So if David is a root, there's someone that's going to shoot off of that branch. And he's a righteous one. Now, the Bible says there's never been anyone righteous except one. David himself, was he righteous on his own? We all know David has some problems. Whenever you feel bad about yourself, go read about David. Okay? Solomon had a problem or two or 300 of them. If you know the story, these are not 
there was no other righteous branches. David wasn't a righteous branch. Solomon wasn't a righteous branch. Rehoboam wasn't a righteous branch. Jehoshaphat wasn't a righteous branch. They all had their problems. But Jeremiah, through the lens of prophecy, he can't see it as clearly as you can. We all go, yeah, we know him. But Jeremiah says there's one coming and he will be a righteous branch. And he will rule and reign. He will make things right. And he says this in the middle of all of this darkness. And what this reminds me is we must not doubt in the dark what God promises us in the light. It will get dark. You've got to hold on to the promises. And that's what Jeremiah is telling the people of God. While they're marching you to Babylon, you're going to have to hold on to these promises. While you spend the next 70 years and some of you are going to die there, you're going to have to every day hold on to who God is. It's your only hope. And I would say that to us today. I don't have an answer for why cars run into parades. I don't have an answer to why a kid walks into school and shoots his friends. I don't have an answer. What I do know is this. This is a dark world. And Jesus stepped into it for us. And instead of asking us to escape out of it, he leaves us in it and empowers us while we're in it to be who he's called us to be and show the world what the kingdom of God looks like right now in this place and in this time. The next verse in the prophecy says, In those days Judah, or the people of God, will be, look at this word, saved. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. This is as they're watching the destruction. And this is his name. Oh, I love this. We're getting these clues. Now, God doesn't give him Jesus yet. We don't don't get that name until the angel looks at Mary and Joseph and says, This is what you name it. But we get these clues. And look at the clue here. His name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Remember that righteous branch? Let, Let me ask you a question here. How many, of you, how many of you in this room would say that you are righteous? Okay, No, no one's raising their hands because we're all honest people. We all know we're not righteous. We're not good on our own. But every Christian in this room, you didn't know it maybe, but you have called Jesus by that name. You've called him the Lord is my righteousness or you wouldn't be a Christian. Because every true Christian has had a moment where you realized you were not good on your own and you needed Jesus to take your place. Is that right? And that's the gospel. The gospel is is that Jesus was righteous. We're not. But when he died, he made a way for all of those who believe in him to have his righteousness credited to us. So every real Christian looks at Jesus as the Lord is my righteousness. So now let me ask you, how many of you have ever called Jesus that name? The Lord is your righteousness. How many of you, Jesus is how you're getting to heaven? How many of you would say in this room proudly and thankfully, Jesus is my hope today? Amen? He is your righteousness. So the Lord is our righteousness, and we would say that Jesus in this prophecy is the king who saves. So at Christmas time, we say he's the one who proves that God keeps his promises, and he's the king who saves. Now, when you look at this situation, you go, well, he didn't save them, right? The, the Babylonians are going to take them into exile. And when Jesus shows up in the incarnation, he comes into Jerusalem, and there's another bunch of bad guys in charge. And who are they? The Roman Empire. And everybody thinks, dude, if you're the Messiah, let's start with Pontius Pilate. We'd like to see you beat him up. Let's get the Romans out of here. You remember there was all of that. And you remember they said, well, are we, should we keep giving money? If you're the Messiah, we'll keep giving money to Rome. And Jesus said, give Caesar what Caesar's. What? I thought you came to save us. You're the Messiah, right? But you're the Messiah? He even says one time, he says, if a Roman soldier asks you to walk one mile, walk two. Well, that doesn't sound like we're in charge, Jesus. We wanted David. Where's your slingshot, pal? See, Jesus comes as a king like the earth has never seen. 
Jesus comes and he does not save his people from evil empires on earth. He saves people from an evil empire in the spiritual world. And he saves people from themselves, their own sin. Not just for a moment, but for eternity. Jesus saves us in a way that secures us beyond this life. That's how great of a king he is. In fact, that word saved here in this verse and throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew, the word saved is the word yasha. Everyone say it. Yasha. Do you remember what the angel said when the angel comes to Mary and Joseph? and says, you're going to have a baby. And here's what you name him. You name him Yeshua. Jesus. You see the Hebrew word coming together there? And he says, and here's why you're going to name him Yeshua, because he's the one who will save. He's not just the one who will reign. He's the one who will save. He will Yasha. He is Yeshua. He will save us. He is Jesus. The next verse in the prophecy says this. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now these next two... Two pieces of the prophecy are important. This first one is about the king part. Remember, the people Jeremiah is talking to are watching the throne of David and Solomon be destroyed. So they think it's over. This kingly promise that God promised us is over. And God says, nope, think again. There's never going to be a time where there's not a man sitting on this throne. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So we'd say Jesus is not only the king who saves, he's the king who reigns. He's the king who reigns forever. And what God was saying through Jeremiah is the same thing we need to understand today. God was saying through Jeremiah to his people, I don't need these buildings. They can tear that temple down and I'll still be God. They can tear that throne down and I'll still be king. They can tear the walls of this city down and I can still be your protector. That, we always say this at Three Circle. Look, I like our buildings. This building in Fairhope, man, I like it. I hope a hurricane doesn't knock the thing all the way down. But if it happens, and Lord, don't let it happen. But if it does, we're still having church, right? Like we're not going to go, oh no, Three Circle Church doesn't exist anymore. The building is gone. No, no, even during the pandemic when we really couldn't get in here and, and do what we do, we still did what we do because we were still the church, right? Because the kingdom of God, it tells us in the New Testament, is not held within man-made things. No house, no temple can hold it. Only the hearts of his people. So therefore, even though everything in Jerusalem was being destroyed, God could say, I'm going to keep all my promises. I don't need that temple. I don't need that throne. And he would say to you today, I don't need, this. I don't need these buildings. I don't need your comfort. I don't need everything to be perfect in your life. I can still do great things in your life right where you are. These are the promises of our God. He reigns. Jesus wanted us to know that he was the Messiah that the entire Old Testament prophesied about. In fact, one day he was with his disciples. Now remember who those disciples were, 12 of them. And they were all, for the most part, Jewish guys who had grown up since they were little kids hearing about one who was coming, the Messiah. They'd been taught to look for the Messiah their whole lives, right? So these 12 men looking for the Messiah, but no one had said yet if they believed that Jesus was that one. So Mark 8 says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. See, the first question he asked is, What does your culture right now say about me? Now, we could be asked the same question. What does our culture say about Jesus? Well, that he's a good prophet. Like, if Jesus asked you that question, how would you answer him? 
Well, the world sometimes says you're a good prophet. You were a good man. You were all about love, man, you know? All the stuff our culture says about Jesus. All of them wrong answers. And every answer the disciples' culture was saying about Jesus was wrong as well. He was not John the Baptist. He was not Elijah. And he was not just one of the prophets. So then Jesus asked the crucial question. He looks at the disciples and he says, But who do you say that I am? And this is where hope hinges. What do you believe about Jesus? And remember, Peter's the one that answered. And Peter's the one that always says typically the wrong thing. He's the guy we make fun of. We're like, Peter is always going to say something, and about 50-50 is it going to be right or wrong, right? But on this day, Peter looks at him, and it's powerful. We miss it. We blow through the Bible. But you got to understand, here's a man who's now a grown adult who spent his whole life reading about the Messiah. And he looks at Jesus when he's finally asked, and he says, I know who you are. And I've known for a little while, basically, you know. I knew the moment I threw that net over the boat when you told me to. And there were so many fish in the net, it was pulling the boat down. I remember that moment. I, I, was, I knew then, and I'm telling you right now, I know who you are. You're the one I read about my whole life. You're the one my parents taught me about. You're the one the priests talk about. You are the Messiah, the Christ. See his words? See how powerful those words are? You're our hope. You're the deliverer. You're the one we've all been hoping for. You are the Christ. And, of course, Jesus looks at him and says, you're right. To which I'm sure Peter was like, got one. Yes, you know. So Jesus is the king. But he's not just a king. The last verse reminds them that everything is still intact. Have you ever thought that everything in your life was coming apart? You ever had those moments? A couple of years ago, man, it felt like that, right? With the pandemic, I thought, man... Church, LA, politics, cult, it seemed like everything's coming apart. And I had to be reminded every day, no, 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 as long as I have Jesus, everything's actually intact in him, right? That's hope. Well, the people of God in this moment are being reassured that everything is intact and nothing is lost. They think, we don't have a king anymore, the throne is gone. God says, I got you covered. Well, we're going to be taken into exile, he says, I'm the God who saves I will save you even in the middle of those circumstances. But the last thing that had to have been a shot to their heart is watching Solomon's great temple hit the ground. And you know that the priests were either killed or taken into that exile as well. So there was no more sacrifices made. They had to stop. All their worship had to stop. And they were grieving. And they thought, we can't even worship God anymore. And listen to what he says about Jesus. He says, Jesus is going to hold all of that intact. Look at the last verse. And not just king, but also the Levitical priest will never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So the prophecy is saying, you're not losing your king, you're not losing your savior, and you're also not losing your priest. Jesus is going to be all three. So lastly, we'd say Jesus is the king who mediates. He stands in our place. And nothing can change this hope that we have in Jesus. And Jeremiah is talking to some people that are losing all that. Their priests are gone. Their temple is gone. Their king is gone. Their throne is gone. The walls of their city, the protection they have, gone. The gates of the city burned to the ground. Everything's gone. And yet God's able to look at them and go, nothing's gone. All of that can be taken from you. And I'm still your king. And I'm still your priest. And I'm still your savior. And I'm still your protector. You go, now how, how can we grab onto that? I'll, I'll give you an example. That's why a man 
can look at you through a video camera who, without his choosing, ended up in a wheelchair. Every day of Pastor Phil Boyle's life, he wakes up when his eyes open and he's in that chair or in that bed. And yet, I've yet to see that chair or that bed contain that man's hope. I hadn't seen it yet. If you get anywhere near Phil Boyles, who you just heard from a moment ago, you will be inspired. You want to know why? Because the accident didn't take his hope. It didn't take his hope. And every day he wakes up. I feel bad sometimes when I hang around Phil because he's typically in a better mood than I am. And I'll come in talking about stuff, and he, he just looks at me, and he's like, what are you, would you stop complaining? He's always up about everything. He's got all of this hope. Where does that come from? It comes from a man whose hope wasn't in his circumstances, ever. It was in Jesus. It's in Jesus. How can God look at people who are losing everything in Jerusalem and say, you still have everything to hope for? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And see, this is important for us as Christians because Psalm 147.11 says this. Look at it. It says, but the Lord takes pleasure. Now, just pause there before you read the rest. That's interesting to me. The Lord takes pleasure. Now, I take pleasure in things as well, just like I'm sure you do. I don't know what brings you pleasure, but like, for instance, look, when I pull into that line at Chick-fil-A, that drive through line, that's a long line, right? Let's be honest for a second here. I mean, when you're two miles down Highway 98 and you're having to get on the side of the road because you're headed to Chick-fil-A, that's a long line. And then, you know, once you get in there, you're not there yet. And you're going to take a few circles around that thing like a plane trying to land. But why do you, like, why are you in a good mood? Why are you in a, it doesn't really get to you because you know what's waiting for you at that window. You know after a while a person's going to come to you with an iPad, which is your connection to the delights of this life. And when you get up to that window, you know a warm buttery bun with a pickle and the gospel bird resting nicely between the buns is waiting on you, right? And that window opens up and they look at you with a smile and hand you a warm steamy bag and they say, my pleasure, to which always in my heart I say, no, it is my pleasure. Right? Now, I don't know what brings you pleasure, but we have lots of things that do because God made us like him. He made us creatures of pleasure. And they're so the delights of this life are awesome, right? But the Bible says that your God takes pleasure. There's things that bring him pleasure. And if that's the case, and I believe it is, then I don't know about you. I want to be a part of that. I'd like to be a part of whatever it is that brings pleasure to the Almighty. Are you with me? Oh, come on. Are you with me, church? Yeah? All right. The Lord takes pleasure. Two things. And those who fear him, that means you obey him. Fear does not mean I'm scared of God. It means, no, I respect him and I obey him. He takes pleasure in that. But he also takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. Hope. We place our hope in him. My hope is not in my circumstances changing. My hope is not in everything working out the way I want it to. This Christmas, my hope is certainly not in me having the perfect Christmas morning that could be put on a Southern Living magazine. Because no matter how hard we try, it doesn't work that way. You want to know why? Because all those pictures at Christmas that are perfect are all on a throne of lies. <laughs> we all know it doesn't work that way, does it? Something's going to go awry. But, but, but no, no. God takes pleasure in people who have trusted in him and their hope is in him. And they don't allow their circumstances to rob them of that. They don't allow the darkness of this world to blot that out. It's in him. It's in him.
So here at Three Circle, we've been sharing some hope. Because hope is not an escape, it's an injection of hope into the situation. We've done it in three different ways over the past few weeks. I want to celebrate it with you. First, sharing hope. Next week, we're going to go to Camden, New Jersey, which is a food desert. There are people who are starving to death in America, kids. And we as a church, through the hand of God, have connected with this town. And we're taking all those bags. And because of your generosity over the past few weeks and today, we're going to take all of these bags. And, and it, what started three years ago with three schools, this year is 30 schools in this little area have invited us to come help their kids. It's unbelievable. I asked one. Number two, toss us a turkey, a 10-year tradition here at Three Circle. This year was by far the biggest we've ever had. Y'all brought so many turkeys and hams and pies that over 400, not people, 400 families got to have a great meal because of Three Circle. Right here in our area. Because of Toss Turkey. That's awesome. All right? And then finally, you know what happened in Afghanistan a few months ago? Afghanistan has been taken over by modern-day Babylon in a way. Modern-day brutality. And Christians, you didn't know this, but you as a church already supported through Dulas. That's our friends David and his team. Dulas, they were working with pastors. We had already planted hundreds of churches inside of Afghanistan. You didn't know that. Many of those pastors have been killed already. All right? And, and part of your money was going there. So we've been talking to David. And here's the deal that's going on in Afghanistan. You've got some Christians who need to be rescued because they're on the kill list. Seriously, they're on the list that they could be harmed. Dulas is working to get them out, but there's a group of pastors in Afghanistan that have said, we're not going anywhere, and if it costs us our lives, we're going to stay right here in Afghanistan and plant the flag of the gospel in the middle of Babylon. And so David and his team at Dulas are both rescuing and supporting pastors who are staying there. And last week, we, because of your generosity, got to write a big check to Dulas and go take this money and keep bringing some out and supporting those who are in there for the gospel. All right, I wanted you to know that, okay? Now, lastly, for you, I want all of us in this room to feel hope. One great movie of all time is Shawshank Redemption. You remember that? Shawshank Redemption, they're out of prison in the 1940s. It's inhumane, this prison. But they're all guilty, except one guy, Andy Dufresne. Y'all remember old Andy? He's smart. And Andy Dufresne's innocent. He shouldn't be there, but he's there for life. But Andy's going to inject hope into hell at this place. One day he's working in an office and he finds an opera record and he realizes what he can do. The intercom to all the speakers in the entire prison's right here. So Andy Dufresne takes the opera record, which is beautiful. It's gorgeous music. It's this beautiful thing. And he realizes what's going on. So he locks all the doors so the police officers can't get to him for a while anyway. And then he walks over and he starts up the record player and he gets this opera music playing, this beautiful music, and he turns on the intercom. And every prisoner in that place can hear it. And they all stop and listen to this beauty. And Morgan Freeman, like only he can do, does the voiceover. He's one of the actors. And he says, for just a moment, every person at Shawshank felt free. That's the power of hope, isn't it? That's the power of hope. That's what Jesus has done for us. So, so that you'll never forget that. Check this out.
I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. <laughs> 